Hello everyone, welcome back to Rogue Opinions. My name as always is Nathan here with another brand new series. We've had a bit of a shake up here at Rogue Opinions and the newest one is from mine and my new co-host Brain and we are talking heists, some of the most audacious attempts at stealing stuff ever in history but of course as always on these things you can't do them alone so with us making her debut here on Rogue Opinions it is Sam. Hello Sam. How are you today? You well? Yeah, I'm doing all right. Thanks. Another Scottish person joining the ranks. You Glaswegians are just all over us. <laughs> Hopefully we're not going to take over too much, just here and there. Just peacefully in the corner, but no, let the let the listeners know just kind of who you are, I guess. Who are you? Uh, I'm Sam, and I'm into like all things kind of geek culture, uh, movies, TV, uh, comic books, that kind of thing. What's your favourite heist movie? Ooh, that's a difficult one. Um, I quite like uh, is it the the British one that came out? I can't even remember what it's called now. Oh, well. um, the one that had the guy that plays Daredevil in it, and a bunch of the older guys. I can't really remember what it's called now. Oh, what, ben Affleck. Uh, no, 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 not Charlie Ben Affleck. Cox. Yes, Charlie Cox. Yeah. Oh, I can't remember what that. I can't that. remember that one either. <laughs> I can't remember the name of it. Did you watch Army of the Dead on Netflix lately, recently? Oh yes, I did. I had oh oh, I have mixed feelings on that film. It was such a good heist. It's very audacious. Mm. Mm. I just feel like if you took all the slow mo out, it'd be fine. But I know that's a huge, you know, Zack Snyder thing. (laughs) (laughs) He was born in slow motion. Mm. I just thought it was. (laughs) I just thought it was so funny how they're going in to like this place it's full of zombies but none of them are wearing like proper body armor like all their their arms and their skins all like exposed it's just so so silly why would why would you do that especially when you are like going in as a team uh to complete this mission mm. just it's just logic. pure arrogance <laughs> yes. arrogance on their part to think that they just would not get bitten mm-hmm mm-hmm but we're not here to talk about talk about fictional heists. We're here to talk about a real heist that took place. And to talk about that, we have to go all the way back to, in episode one to the 1600s, even before I was born. And we're talking about Thomas Blood. And Thomas Blood, Sam, was a man who stole the literal crown jewels. That's pretty impressive. Yeah, we're starting big. It's, <laughs> it's go big or go home here. And yeah, we'll just talk about how how he went about that really who he is because he's not someone that's really it's not a name that I'd heard before I started uh, looking into some of these crazy things that people have tried in the past Have you ever heard the name before I hadn't and I thought that you know if you have actually been able to steal the crown jewels that, that would kind of maybe cement you in history a bit more yeah and he was an Irishman so I did ask some uh some Irish people uh if they learned about him in school or anything because obviously he didn't come up in my history lessons but no he's just He's probably, he would be very upset if he learned he was probably a little bit lost to time, unless you start doing research, I guess. But who was Thomas Blood? Thomas Blood, he was born in Ireland uh, in and around 1618. It was, uh, it was believed he was probably born in the town of Sarni in County Meath. And uh, his father, who had originally made his money through owning and operating an iron works, and before then investing that into some lands, and this led to Thomas Blood being described as, quote-unquote, the son of a blacksmith. 
but that gives entirely the wrong impression about how well off his family were. His grandfather, Edmund Blood, had come to Ireland in service of Elizabeth I, then stayed on and uh, to become a member of the Irish Parliament, uh, though Thomas's father, who was also called Thomas, was only a younger son. He still inherited all the money to begin his little business empire. So, as always, these lovely people come from wealth. Is that nice for them? Yeah, yeah it's nice to have money because you don't have to really worry too much about, you know, where you're going to be in the future. Whereas now, you know, if you don't have anything, you kind of need to work your way up. Yeah, you do. And, you, and Thomas Blood, obviously, is, as you guys are going to learn, put that to, to just terrific use, all of this wealth that he had, uh, very much sort of probably a bit of an ugly duck duckling in this family tree of the bloods which is a fantastic name and one that i'm surprised a wrestler hasn't stolen <laughs> yeah that would sound pretty good quite intimidating uh, so thomas himself we'll talk about thomas blood not his father he was sent off to school in england which is very much kind of a, a way of the times for protestants in ireland and for rich people in particular who could afford it he studied in lancashire uh, where he also had family, and that was where he met Maria Holcroft. Now, Maria Holcroft would end up being his wife, uh, but there is a little bit of conflicting reports on this because uh, they got married. Some people put this relationship being 10 years ahead of where most people put it, so it's one of those things that kind of got lost uh, in time. I guess it's always hard to put these things together. Uh, now, Maria's father, John Holcroft, was a member of the landed gentry, which basically meant very rich people with a lot of land again. Uh, and so it was seen as this being a quote unquote good match at the times. Uh, by some accounts, Thomas married the 17 year old Maria, controversial now, but not then. In 1638, he would have only been 20. And then they moved back to Ireland. Getting married at 17 is very old school. I wouldn't fancy that. I was still in college. Yeah, I don't think I'd like that either because you've never really, like, I feel like when you're 17, you have zero life experience at that point. And to just kind of, you know, shackle yourself to someone at that that young age is just, it blows my mind, to be fair. I think it's just one of those incredibly rich people, because rich people things, because you're super rich, so you can just afford to do it. So it's like, hey, why not? It's like... Or uh, I guess maybe they were just super in love. It's hard to know. But 17 and 20 to get married sounds insane. But yeah, know, yeah. Could you does. legally get married at 17 now? Uh, well, I think you can because uh, you can legally have sex at 16. Uh, so potentially, I think you just wouldn't be able to have alcohol, I suppose. Well, then what's the point of getting married? <laughs> the wedding yeah. party would be rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so... The young Thomas Blood, he seemed to have shown a great deal of promise as he was made a justice of the peace, which is going to be very ironic in a bit. At the surprisingly young age of 21, this may have been due to the troubled times, though. England was on the brink of the Civil War and Irish rebels were sensing weakness. Uh, in 1641, a rebellion broke out among the Catholic members of the Irish gentry, again, very rich people who owned a lot of land, who feared invasion by the, inc the increasingly hardline Protestant Parliament of England. Now, naturally, the Protestant gentry, like Thomas Blood, lined up on the opposite side under James Butler, who was the Duke of Ormond, which is a title that will get repeated again in a little bit. But the war in Ireland 
touched off a civil war in England and Thomas headed back across the Irish Sea to fight in the army of Charles I. So right now he's on that side of it. He sounds like a pretty stand up guy. Right, he's heading yeah. off to war. That's not bad. Yeah, he sounds like he's, you know, going to go and go off and, you know, fight for what he believes in. Uh, I don't know what it's going to result in, but, you know, sounds like he's, you know, fighting for what he believes in. Right now, you kind of hear about the guy and you think, how does this guy end up going to try and steal the most precious thing to the English crown? Because he's fighting for the crown. He's got a lot of land. His life's pretty, other than war being all around him. His life's pretty sweet right now. But uh, as we head over back to the war, unlike the clear-cut Catholic versus Protestant narrative in Ireland, matters in England were a lot muddier. His father-in-law, Thomas Holcroft, stood on the opposite side, as did most English Presbyterians, which is the religion that they fell under. And when I looked up what Presbyterian was, because I'd never heard it um, before, it was part of like a Protestant religion. It's just another, you know, there's a billion branches of Christianity. Yeah. It's just another one of those, but it kind of comes off the Protestant side a little bit. Mm-hmm. And they really believe that, that the church should be forming the government a little bit more than the other ones. So probably good for the times, wouldn't work now. Uh, Thomas, though, stayed loyal to the crown, at least for now. It's thought that he might have been captured by the parliamentarians at the siege of Sherborne and then freed on parole to go back to Ireland for his father's funeral in 1645. He was still in Ireland when the fighting ended with the king's capture by parliament in 1646. So unfortunately, we've got to say goodbye to Thomas's dad now. <laughs> so bye to him. Uh, peace didn't last very long, though, for a little bit. In 1648, the fighting broke out again. And Thomas did head back into the war. Now, initially he fought on the, on the royalist side. And there was kind of a story going around that he was behind an attempt to kidnap the man who had led the siege of Sherbourne. Or Sherbourne sorry. It soon became clear that the royalist side was doomed. And like a lot of men fighting for glory rather than beliefs, this is where, if you, you're talking about, if we want to link this back to wrestling for a lot of our audience, it's probably where they come from. This is where he turned heel. <laughs> so Thomas flipped at this side uh, after the execution of Charles I and he actually straight away a year less than a year later he became a cavalry officer for the other side which was Oliver Cromwell and how he pulled that off I've got no idea because he got immediately made an officer like you got to feel like maybe when he got kid when he got quote, quote unquote captured that maybe they turned him then but like to just switch sides and get made an officer, something's got to happen there. Yeah, you would think, because I'm pretty sure if, you know, the tide hadn't turned and he'd stayed on the side and that he was on and they had won, he probably wouldn't have got promoted the way he did after turning. Yeah, he got, he got, he said he got rewarded at this point. Like maybe they just saw he was a good fighter. He proved his loyalty a little bit. Uh so now, hey, here, become an officer for me. That would be great. But I don't get it. Like, if if someone flipped and turned and tried to join us, I wouldn't immediately give them a podcast. <laughs> like, I'd make them earn their stripes, like I'm doing with you. <laughs> <laughs> now, as we said earlier, there was some conflicting accounts about when he first met Maria, who is his wife. Uh, this is where some people say it was. 
uh, or that they'd met before in 1638 and then they met again after all of this and then they got married not really necessary the only important bit right now uh, is that Maria does give birth to their first child in 1650 uh so if we just run through that so firstly maria's father was an mp and an officer in the roundheads which is a terrible name but that's what kind of the cromwell people were calling themselves not a fan of that at all that's rubbish uh and that put him right into thomas's circle secondly as i just said their first child was born in 1650 if they'd been married earlier it's more likely it should have would have been with thomas's family in ireland though the t- it's all a bit up in the air about when they first met, but they do have a child. Now, the war in England came to an end in 1651, but fighting did continue in Ireland for the next two years. Thomas returned to his homeland with Cromwell's forces and took part in the notoriously brutal suppression of the Irish rebels. So he's flipped on his people completely at this point. He's now attacking fellow Irishmen. So suddenly we're not liking this guy as much. Uh, Following this fighting, Cromwell instituted land confiscations and redistributions that saw the percentage of Irish land in Catholic hands reduced from 60 to 8 percent. So he was just seizing people's stuff, just walking up to their home, just being like, nah, this is this is ours now and essentially giving it off to Protestants. So it's all down to that lovely, lovely religion. Isn't religion so peaceful, Sam? Oh, yeah. All of it is just so... So peaceful. Everyone can just get along, can't they? It never causes issues. Nah. Ever. <laughs> now, another reason why they took the land, it wasn't all religion-based. Uh, Obviously, some of it came down to money. Uh, so some of the land was basically sold off because the government was in massive debt. Uh, some of it was given in land grants to parliamentary, to, to parliamentary soldiers. And Thomas was, of course, he put himself in a position to be one of those soldiers and he was given a nice comfortable bit of land and he retired from military what uh, military life sorry to be with his wife and son so everything everything came up uh, thomas cromwell at this point so beautiful beautiful stuff he's done well for himself sam yeah it couldn't happen to a nicer bloke could it sometimes you just got to position yourself well in the in the government and become like studious enough to get given a load of land that isn't yours because you probably killed the people that owned it i mean how else are you meant to get land you know yeah right so we said earlier that uh, thomas blood's uh, dad passed away and i think i might have misspoke i said that maria's dad passed away well, that was wrong maria maria's dad actually sadly passed away in 1656 uh, he was a wealthy enough man and his estate became the subject of legal battles but Thomas was well enough off at this time to not need to get drawn into them. More significant to him was a death in 1658, that of Thomas Cromwell. Though the rest of the parliamentarian side tried to hold it together, it became clear that without their linchpin, they were doomed to fall apart. In 1660, it was declared that Charles II was the lawful ruler of England. Thus began the fall of Thomas Blood's fortune. And this is where we get into the tasty bit of finding out really who Thomas Blood was. And so he's in a bad position at this point now. 
so what happened next was there was an act passed called the Indemnity and Oblivion Act, and it meant that people like Thomas, who had fought for Parliament, were safe from from prosecution. But the land seized by Cromwell in Ireland was another matter. The land seized from the rebels of the Catholic Confederacy was not going to be returned, of course. But those who had fought as royalists or who had not taken part in the Confederacy were allowed to put in claims to retrieve their land. This led, of course, to bitter disputes. One of those impacted was Thomas Blood, who lost 85% of his land, which we need to put in heavy quotations when we say his land. Most of, of what he was left with was barren mountain territory. At a stroke, he was reduced from prosperous landed to being forced to rely on the support of his relatives. So it's come back to bite him in the bum, sadly. Which I think is a good thing, probably. Yeah, probably, because he's shown that he's easy easy to turn on on a dime, really. And the that land wasn't really his in the first place. So I guess it's kind of some kind of justice in there. Yeah, now one thing that we just that we mentioned earlier was that maria's dad's land and all of his estate were up was a bit up in the air and now he had really no money to fight that with so what does thomas blood turn to instead obviously sam i don't know how you the sort of react to getting like a parking ticket or something stolen with you uh from you i often decide that at this point i'm going to attack a castle oh yeah um that sounds like such a reasonable and rational uh, decision to make yeah it really does so obviously that's a completely rational path to think down which is why thomas blood did that so in 1662 he began his conspiracy to attack dublin castle and kidnap the lord lieutenant which is great with a date being set for March of 1663, 50 troops were persuaded over to the cause, along with several MPs in the Irish Parliament. <laughs> Luckily for James Butler, one of his spies discovered the plot and it was thwarted. Unluckily, he thwarted it before any overaction had been taken and he was unable to round up the ringleaders. Thomas Blood, who was, of course, one of those ringleaders, and he was left free to continue to plot. So <laughs> they found out about it but they almost found out about it too quickly. So everyone just scattered instead. <laughs> now, Sam, this it didn't go well this time. What would you think you would do at this point? Would you give up or would you immediately try again? Um, I think I'd probably want to go away and kind of like rethink and re-strategize and maybe try again, you know, later on when the castle obviously doesn't have its defenses up high because it's just heard about this attack. But, you know, I think Thomas Blood's proven already that he's not the most rational thinker when it comes to these things. A month later, in April, so he said the first attempt happened in 1663, in March, a month later in April, they decided, you know what, it's time, it's time to do this again. And Thomas Blood decided to be, he was going to be the front man this time. He was really going to take leadership over this and he was going to lead the assault on Dublin Castle. And his name was put as the author of their Declaration of Intent, something that I didn't really know you needed when you decided you were going to attack a castle. Uh, but he really, the only reason he did this is because he was, I don't know if you've really realised this, he's a little bit narcissistic. Yeah, I can see that. <laughs> yeah, and it's apparently said that he's not, he wasn't 
either he put himself forward as kind of the guy no i'm the guy i'm in charge of everything it's been said before that he wasn't even really the person that came up with the plan that was actually a guy called Stephen Shonok, uh, who was another minister in the Irish Parliament. The Irish Parliament is just filled with great people as it stands at the moment. Now, Thomas Blood obviously put himself forward. So I think we can give him the blame for this because right around their ranks was a guy called Philip Alden, who was actually an informer. Yeah, he was a spy, essentially. And yeah, his, his plan got it got ruined again. So not great. Uh, the plan was actually just to disguise themselves as petitioners uh, to to the Duke to infiltrate the castle and overpowered the gate guards, after which blood and a hundred men would storm the castle. After they had control of the Lord Lieutenant, a signal would be sent north and the Ulster Scott Rebellion would begin. But the government struck before they could even kind of get this all going. So it sounded like a good plan. It's just a shame that they hired people who were essentially spies. Not great. You've got to do good background checks, really. Yeah, that's true. Uh, I wonder how that would have went if they didn't have the spies, you know, would, the cast- would they have got the castle, you know? Yeah, like you, do, decent... you do think it might have gone really well if they didn't repeatedly balls it up. Yeah, I think if they'd given it, like, a little bit more time and obviously, you know, had a better idea of who was in the ranks, uh, they may have actually pulled it off. Yeah, so Thomas remained in Dublin after this. Probably not his best idea. There was a big manhunt out to get him, uh, but he would often, as we, once again, we talk about Thomas Blood and his disguises again. He would kind of hide in front of people. He pretended to be a Catholic priest, a bit ironic for a Protestant. Uh, this is to take advantage of the Catholic network that supported uh, supported everything that was going on in the country at the minute. He made his way down from Dublin to Wicklow, where he stayed in hiding before, uh, for some time. One thing we've not mentioned for a while, he's still got a wife and kid at this point. So quite what they're up to. Apparently he would secretly visit them from time to time. But, I mean, Sam, you live with a, a partner. Would you be happy if he was avoiding a manhunt, but kind of came around every now and then to see you? Uh, I would probably think he's put me in a lot of danger by doing this and also i don't understand if they're looking for him why they didn't just go to his family and kind of you know stake the place out yeah there, he's got family in lancashire like across, i guess it's not it probably isn't that easy it's just boarding a ferry in the 1600s to get from oh. ireland to Lancashire. yeah this uh, is all in dublin as i said so it's yeah all... i didn't realize they were in dublin so i didn't realize they had hadn't went over with them yeah so when he went to school he did have family in lancashire which is why he went off to school across there uh, uh, but so he could have gone over there. I don't know if they were still in Lancashire, but he just would have thought. I don't know where quite where Wicklow is off the top of my head, but I can't imagine it's far from Dublin if he's secretly visiting his wife and kids still. What must yeah. a kid be thinking? I know when, my dad just shows up out of the blue every goddamn castle. <laughs> Honestly, if I was Thomas, I would have just stayed over the like in Lan- was it Lancashire? Lancashire. Lancashire, yeah. I would have just stayed there and just weed for the all the you know hullabaloo he died down and just wait till the manhunt was off <laughs> Lay low. so by 1664 thomas was back across the water in england there we go he's back yeah he's paying visits to his widowed mother-in-law and becoming embroiled in a plot to seize the king in london so he's upping his game from failing to get a castle he now wants to actually steal the king 
So what a you gotta love someone that dreams really. He's like one of those people that tells you, nah, I'm I'm gonna have an idea and I'm gonna be rich one day. I mean, give him credit for having ambition. Yeah. I mean <laughs> But what this really was was this whole plan, he really only had one plan at the moment. It was base it was he was planning the same thing that didn't work in Dublin, but just doing it bigger. Um, mm-hmm. probably on like whatever palace was built at the time now obviously it met the same fate it was undone it was undone by the Stuart intelligence service this was an organized uh, by a group known as the fifth monarchists who believed that the second coming was due in 1666 and that it was their holy duty to overthrow the king before then nothing came of this plot nor one back in ireland stage rebellion so in 1666 thomas did the obvious thing which was to go to holland why not, eh? Yeah, it's like, that seems so random. Hmm. Yeah, so it's funny that even back in 1666, you got kind of religious people that just believe any random year is going to be the second coming. Because we've had a lot of, like, three or four of them in my lifetime. Yeah, yeah. So there we go. So the Stuart Intelligence Service overthrew it, who just kind of worked for the king. He was trying to organise this plot with the fifth monarchist who believed that the second coming was due in 1666 and they had to kill the king to make that happen strange but yeah he obviously went to holland you ever been to holland uh no i haven't oh oh, fair enough it's it's (laughs) nice it's very nice right so he was running off to holland to to get away and he was also in search of exiled parliamentarianism parliamentarians sorry to help his cause so he's still looking to get people on side he thinks he can find some exiled people in holland who can help him out there's a bit of a twist coming because as soon as thomas and his companion on this trip john locker arrived in holland they were immediately arrested and this is because the dutch actually thought they were english spies uh, luckily for them, a guy by the name of John Phelps was visiting the Netherlands at the same time. He had acted as clerk of the trial of King Charles II, before, uh, King Charles I, sorry, before King Charles I was executed. Uh, this was enough to get him exempt from the, uh, from the Oblivion Act and force him to go on the run in Europe. And naturally, his vouching uh, for Thomas Blood and that proved that they weren't any friends of the English crown. So he's kind of, again perhaps one of the luckiest people in the world at getting away with things because he just yeah. happened to go to Holland at the same time as John Phelps who could vouch for them and the Dutch trusted him because he was the one who put King Charles I on trial just lucky lucky by association yeah he just seems to have like I don't know maybe he's just got some devil worship rituals that he's been doing just to kind of have the devil on his side this whole time you know oh it kind of reminded me of the winchesters you know you always think that they're gonna you know die but then they end up you know coming back again and again and again so he must be making some kind of you know deals he seems to be very popular with a certain amount of people like he obviously became he he hates the crown as we know because uh despite kind of helping england against the irish it's actually then the english monarchy that took all his land and everything so he lost everything, but it's just the overreactions. It's like rather than sort of doing anything by the book and being like, no, I got given this land. It's mine. Here's my claim to it. He's like, I'm going to take over a fucking castle. <laughs> <laughs> uh, as always, I love conspiracy theories as well, and they've always existed. It's not just this thing. So Thomas Blood somehow just became known as kind of a boogeyman 
in England. He was known as quote unquote Colonel Blood, despite never actually being a colonel. But again, that's a great name. And people just started blaming him for everything. They thought the Great Fire of London was his fault. Uh, to the Pentland Rising in Scotland, they blamed on Colonel Blood. Uh, but really, he was now just living quite, quite a quiet life in Romford. And obviously, he was pretending to be a doctor. <laughs> he was Dr. Eilif. Uh, his wife and kids uh, uh, had moved to North London, not far away, but they actually took up the surname of Weston as well. But they didn't live with him. But he was pretending to be a doctor, which is brilliant. I always think when I go to my GP, that I hope they're actually a super criminal on the run pretending to be a doctor. I mean, yeah, I mean, back in those days, you didn't really need that many credentials, you know. You didn't need to show your diploma or anything. No, you could just print out any old certificate and just stick it on the wall. And you're probably fine. <laughs> now, he did, obviously, it wasn't going to last long. He broke cover in 1667 to try and help somebody uh, who had been t- that he used to work with, don't have the name of them, I couldn't find it anywhere, uh, who was on trial in York. Uh, he did manage to to kind of save them uh, but he was seriously wounded at the times and yeah it started being reported that he'd actually died uh, which of course was the that's the perfect cover because then he disappeared again for three years perfect cover how would you fake your own death sam uh, i have no idea uh there's so many like ways that you might be able to do it um i don't know probably uh say that I, I don't know I jumped off a bridge somewhere into the water and my body's just disappeared something like that I don't know I like the idea of just dyeing my hair a completely different cover color pretending to be my twin and saying ah. that I died and now I get to take over his life Okay. <laughs> <laughs> right. Thomas Blood spectacularly reappeared in December of 1670 just in time for Christmas like Michael Bublé uh, with an attack on an old enemy, it's James Butler again, who is the Duke of Ormond and the former Lord Lieutenant of Ireland. You might remember earlier in the episode, he tried to kidnap this guy twice. Uh, so third time's charm uh, with a with a gang, including his eldest son, who he had just bailed out from being arrested as a highwayman. So welcome back to the story, young Tom uh, Thomas Blood Jr., I guess. Uh, Thomas held up the Duke's coach at gunpoint and dragged him out onto the street. Their plan was um, was to take him to a nearby gallows and hang him as a common criminal. So a lovely plan. Not quite as much fun as just taking over a castle. But Butler managed to break loose from his guard and escape to his home nearby. Thomas and his cohorts were forced to flee the scene. He's spectacularly lucky, Thomas Blood. He's also an absolutely terrible criminal. Like, you can't even grab a guy out of a coach and steal him. Yeah, that's just too easy for him, I think. I think he needs to do something more flamboyant or he's not really going to try that much. (laughs) So after this attack, it kind of prompted London, which is the big power at the time. They put a massive £1,000 reward on any information that could get anyone that started this attack as well, which is... I didn't. I should have done the exchange rate beforehand on what that would be, but I feel like a thousand pounds in the 1600s. I reckon like easily probably two, three hundred thousand pounds now. That's enough to set you you up for life. Yeah. Now his identity as Doctor Aliff was rumbled as well, uh, but it wasn't until later that they realised he was also 
Colonel Blood, how they didn't work that one out. They worked out Dr. Aleph, but it took them a lot longer to realise Colonel Blood was Thomas Blood. And they could not find him. That's crazy. Yeah, just useless. Everyone in the 1600s was spectacularly useless. Even the criminals. Even the criminals, especially the criminals. So George Villiers, the Duke of Buckingham, was a mortal enemy of James Butler and would later prove to be a friend of Thomas Blood. The fact, quote unquote, that Villiers had hired Thomas Blood to assassinate Butler soon became one of these things that just everybody knew in quotes. There's no no one knows if this actually happened or not. This was just a conspiracy theory that Blood actually got away because somebody had hired him who had a lot of power, who could brush this under. And it was believed that George Villiers, who said was the Duke of Buckingham, did this. Uh, but regardless of whether it's true, Thomas Butler, son of the Duke of Ormond, was convinced enough that he told Villiers in the presence of the king. Now we get into the fun bit. This is what everyone's here for. We're here for how he stole the crown jewels. And this bit's about to begin. So strap yourselves in, I guess. It's slightly weird. It involves several pairs of gloves. Not something I imagine anyone expected. Uh, but in the spring of 1671, a few months after the attack on the on the Duke, a clergyman and his wife visited the Tower of London to see the crown jewels. Uh, these were all brand new as the originals uh, had been destroyed by Parliament before a restoration. And it was normal for the keeper of the jewels, who's a guy by the name of Talbot Edwards, to show them to tourists for a fee. So he thought nothing of it when the young wife became ill. Now, the young wife was an actress. Now, the, the clergyman that we'd already spoken about, you can all guess who that might be. That's uh, evil man in disguise. Uh, it was Thomas Blood. Uh, so the keeper and his wife let the actress uh, rest in their room for a while. And when the clergyman returned with a and the clergyman returned later with a gift to thank them for his service. Now, I said the clergyman was Thomas Blood and the gift was four pairs of gloves. Quite random, I, mean, I know. Yeah, it's like, what, how, why does he need four pairs? It's so strange. It is worth. Now, as I said, uh, now after this, a friendship began to develop a little bit between Thomas Blood and Talbot Edwards. Now, Talbot Edwards believed that uh, that this was, of course, our old friend, Dr. Aliff. Uh, so the clergyman gave his the clergyman gave his name as Dr. Aliff, but of course was Thomas Blood. The woman was not his wife, Mary, but a young Irish actress he had hired to play the part. Uh, when he bought the when he bought the pistols, he spotted displayed in the wall as a present for his neighbour. It was actually to make sure there were no guns on the premises. And when he offered to introduce the eligible young nephew to the keeper's pretty young daughter, that was setting the scene for the most audacious exploit of his career. So when he went into this guy's house, basically there were some guns on the wall and he asked about them and they weren't real. They were just a present. Uh, but he did give him four pairs of gloves for looking after his fake wife, which is very nice of him. At 7am on the morning of the 9th of May, 1671, the alleged clergyman arrived at the tower along with his nephew. There's heavy quotations over these things, guys, and several friends. He explained this was to he explained this to the Edwards by saying that these friends were visiting London. Now, as I said, the Edwards, Talbot Edwards was the keeper of the crown jewels and all his family, and that his friends wanted to see the crown jewels. He also added that his wife, quotes again, 
uh, would be late and asked if they could see the jewels while they waited. So after pocketing his fee, Edwards unlocked the room, holding the royal regalia. That was when he was struck. Now, he was hit in the head with a hammer. Uh, a cloak was then thrown over Talbot Edwards' head, and he was swiftly gagged and bound. They told him that if he made no noise, they would not harm him. And to his credit, the old keeper tried to make enough noise to warn those outside, but was swiftly stabbed and beaten to the ground with a wooden mallet. That's not very nice. And the reason why they actually had this mallet was not to actually hit anyone over the head with it was perhaps the stupidest part of this heist, which was that they were going to flatten the jewels as much as possible uh, to then hide them in their bag. They didn't bring big enough bags. They didn't bring a big enough bag for a fucking crown. Jeez, after all this planning that's went into having a, an actress for your wife, all these yeah. disguises, gifts, and you don't bring a big enough bag. You don't. So Thomas actually uh, stowed the crown under his coat. Another one of the thief uh, stuck the sovereign's golden orb and stake down his breeches, so down his trousers, uh, whilst Thomas Blood Jr., who was just in because his dad told him to at this point, began to cut one of the scepters in half. And you thought this was where the heist started to go wrong? Because that is a terrible plan. This is actually where it goes wrong. And it's really we've said he's got unbelievable luck with like timing and stuff about the guy being in holland and everything this is where his his luck kind of runs out because the one thing that they hadn't accounted for in all of this was that edward talbot's son whose name is wife i don't know if i'm pronouncing that right but it's w-y-t-h-e i think that's pretty yeah with wife uh yeah he had just returned on leave from the army uh, now, he had not sent word of his arrival ahead as he wanted to just surprise his family. Uh, but I think he was the one that probably got the surprise. Uh, the man on guard for the thieves tried to ask him who he was. Uh, so they had a guy at the top of the stairs who was just going to check who everyone was. Uh, wife ignored him and headed upstairs to greet his family. The guard immediately headed into the strong room and warned his comrades who grabbed whatever they could and fled. Behind them, Talbot managed to get his gag free, uh, despite being hit in the head with a wooden mallet several times, and call for help, uh, drawing his daughter, it's believed, uh, who then raised the alarm. Uh, The thieves uh, got away from the scene. They were then spotted by guards, uh, but shots from their pistols scattered them. Once through the gate, they began running and shouting, stop the rogues making any passers-by think that they were in pursuit rather than fleeing, that's pretty genius, to be fair. That's pretty That's pretty smart on, on their half. If I'm ever in like some sort of chase, if someone's chasing me, I'm going to start doing that as well. <laughs> <laughs> now, they weren't fast enough to outrun Weef or Wife and Captain Martin Beckman, uh, an engineer who was in charge of the weaponry stored in the fortress. The thief with the orb which is believed his name was joshua perrett and another were captured though thomas jr and the man who had stood guard escaped as as for thomas blood he was caught up by beckman who made a grab for the bag under his coat after the after a brief tug of war thomas was overpowered and captured and yeah and apparently he told his captors when he was got it was a gallant attempt however unsuccessful it was for the crown 
Thomas Jr. was captured trying to flee the city when he was recognised as the highwayman, quote unquote, Tom Hunt. So trying to be a highwayman caught up with him. The father and son were imprisoned in the same tower they had tried to rob. Uh, they were facing execution as their best option, with the worst being to be hung, drawn and quartered. But there would be a n- one more twist. But sadly, Sam, the highest fell apart. Hmm. I mean, I think they did pretty well, considering they didn't bring a big enough bag. But uh, they did do very well to get them out of the tower, at least. They did, yeah. And they they didn't face execution, either of them. Uh, Thomas Jr. would end up going back into the military. Remarkably, he was allowed back in. Uh, but Thomas Blood, actually, he would end up facing King Charles II uh, instead. So uh, Thomas insisted that he would only answer questions put to him by King Charles himself. King Charles II, by the way, is the one who ended up uh, taking his land away in the beginning of this story. So it's come full circle at this point. Uh, it was quite surprising to people at the time that Charles even agreed to meet him. Uh, officially, this was due to curiosity to see this infamous rebel, quote unquote. Uh, unofficially, it's been speculated that the Duke of Buckingham. Uh, and his ally, the king's mistress, Barbara Palmer, uh, might have warned the king that Thomas knew things that shouldn't be repeated in open court, or Charles just might have been seen as uh, seen the value of making this notorious rebel an informant. Uh, either way, James Butler, who you might remember is the guy that uh, tr- Thomas Blood kept trying to kidnap, uh, was apparently not very happy about this. Uh, but in the end, what it all came down to, despite f- they faced questions and King Charles asked him uh, why he should give him his life. Um, if he gave him his life, what would Thomas do with it? And Thomas replied, saying he would try and deserve it or I would endeavour to deserve it. And King Charles let him go. That's quite um, shocking, t- to be fair. Uh, I would probably think if anyone tried to steal anything from you, especially something so valuable, you would probably want a bit of justice. It, at least, uh, like even like to put him in prison or something, if not death. But um, yeah, it yeah. just seems like yeah, it's fine. You you tried to do it, but it didn't work out. But yeah, slapping the wrist on for you, off you go. Yeah, I mean, my favorite bit is that one of the conditions for the for the pardon was apparently that Thomas Blood had to apologize to James Butler for trying mm. to kidnap him and kill him. <laughs> I mean, that was I can imagine that being a total non-apology. Yeah. So no one really knows why uh, he actually did pardon him. Some people believe it was just looking like it would would be good for King Charles to have someone with so much say over in Ireland on his side. Or some people think just having him on side would just look good. Some people think that King Charles II was like flattered uh, by Thomas Blood in some weird way. Because Thomas Blood, although uh, told him about his plan to also kill the king... (laughs) So he sat there in a room with two people that he's put plans together to kill. But there you go. As I say, Thomas Blood Jr. would end up joining the the military. Uh, Thomas Blood would uh, end up working in the courts for a bit. And then he would get into various disputes with people, uh, do some more of his disappearing acts until uh, till he would pass away uh, a few years later. Now, my favourite bit about Thomas Blood and something that I think he would be incredibly proud of was that after he died, just a few weeks later, they exhumed his body to make sure he was actually in the ground. 
which I think is hilarious. And for, somehow I hope they have to do that with me. <laughs> I hope I can do something crazy enough that they then have to exhume my body and be like, we just need to make sure this guy's actually dead. Mm, better safe than sorry. So, but that was Thomas Blood and how he he technically did. He got them out of the tower. So he te- he stole them for a little bit, not for very long, but he did get the at least get the crown out of the tower. How would you rate his ability as a heister? Uh, probably maybe about, well, I have to kind of lower the score because they didn't bring a bag big enough. But um, probably about seven, seven or eight, because they did get the crown jewels out of the tower. So that's quite impressive in itself. So, yeah. I mean, yeah. he did, he, he, um, he had everything working for him. Like he got in with the Edwards who were in charge of looking after the the crown jewels it was just the actual bit of getting the crown jewels that kind mm-hmm. of fell apart but he was a he was a shifty guy like he would just disappear for years at a time pretend to be a doctor he pretended to be a priest pretend to be a clergyman try to take over castles and yeah, yeah and it's mm-hmm. it's still the same crown jewels like they've obviously been done up and stuff's been done to them but these are essentially the same crown jewels that are there right now like this is the same set. Like the set before this was destroyed, etc. And the uh, doing whatever it was called, and it was sold off parts of it and everything like that. So they had these new ones built because uh, it was just seen as this important. For some reason, it was seen as important for the monarchy to have this stuff. But yeah, it's still the same ones that you can go see now. Those are the ones that he stole. Yeah, that's pretty quite impressive. Um, I'd be interested to see if anyone would try it now. Yeah, no one's. I don't know if people have tried, but no one's pulled it off since. This was the last and only time at the minute that these crown jewels have been stolen successfully. I say stolen successfully, not really stolen successfully. Uh, I think Thomas Blood is a good place to start on our highest journey. Yeah, I mean, it'd be difficult to try and top that one. But we will, of course, give it a go. Guys, let us know if you uh, enjoyed hearing the story of Thomas Blood. Let us know how you would steal the crown jewels. Like, go mad with it because uh, this guy certainly did you could do that at rogue underscore opinion you can obviously check out the whole back catalogue of things we got going on as well uh you've got some things like scott and carl doing podding ain't easy where they're talking about loki at the minute another master of manipulation uh as well and there's all sorts of stuff on there but sam thank you for joining us hope you enjoyed your debut and that you'll look forward to being back on the channel let the people know where they can find you online if they can uh, i really don't actually have any uh socials that i use actively so sorry i'll need to try and work on that it's fine just tweet at rogue underscore opinion if you want to talk to sam and i'll pass it on to her to get the answer but you can find me at nathan greenaway uh if you're so inclined to do that and otherwise guys we hope you enjoyed this new series we'll be back again soon so bye now bye